The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by the American Beverage Association. Coke, Dr. Pepper, and Pepsi are offering more choices, smaller portions, less sugar. Learn more at balanceus.org. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, June 7th. In today's news, Joe Biden flips on the Hyde Amendment. President Trump has the upper hand in the trade wars, but only until September. And the NYPD finally apologizes for Stonewall. But first, the big idea. To Walmart executives, the self-driving floor scrubber is the future of retail automation. They've made a multi-million dollar bet that advanced robots will optimize operations, cut costs, and revolutionize the American superstore. They call it the Auto-C. That's short for automatic cleaning device. But the machine has a different name to the workers at the Supercenter in Marietta, Georgia. Freddy. Freddy was the name of the janitor who was let go shortly before the Auto-C rolled to life. Freddy's career at the store, the digital one, has gotten off to a rocky start. Workers there say it has suffered nervous breakdowns, it's needed regular retraining sessions, and it's taken weird detours from its programmed rounds. Shoppers are not quite sure how to interact with Freddy either. One kicked it recently. Over the past 50 years, Walmart has recast the fabric of American life, jostling mom-and-pop shops, reshaping small towns, and transforming how millions work and shop. But the latest gamble from the titan of everyday low prices is an entirely new kind of disruption the biggest real-world experiment yet for how workers, customers, and robots will interact in the 21st century. The nation's largest private employer has unleashed an army of robots into more than 1,500 of its jumbo stores. There are thousands of automated shelf scanners, box unloaders, artificial intelligence cameras, and other machines doing jobs once left to human employees. The swarm is already remaking how the retailers more than 1 million U.S. associates go about their daily lives. Given the chain's ubiquity across the country, the local Walmart store also is likely to become the first place that millions of our fellow Americans meet a real-life working robot. Walmart executives have promised the all-hours robot workhorses will let employees endure less drudgery and enjoy, as they put it, more satisfying jobs, while also ensuring shoppers can see cleaner stores, fuller shelves, and faster checkouts. But, The rise of the machines has had an unexpected side effect. Some workers say their jobs have never felt more robotic. By incentivizing hyper-efficiency, the machines have deprived the employees of tasks they used to find enjoyable. Some also feel like their most important assignment now is to train and babysit their often inscrutable robot colleagues. My colleague Drew Harwell has interviewed scores of employees at a half dozen newly automated Walmarts for a piece that will run in the business section of this weekend's newspaper. They told him that the machines are helpful at times, even charming. Some talked about the robots' personalities and said they've adorned them with employee name tags. But others felt this new age of robotics had accelerated the pace of their work and forced them to constantly respond to the machines nagging. Some said it made them doubt the company values their work. This awkward interplay of man versus machine could become one of the defining tensions of the modern workplace as more stores, hotels, restaurants, and other businesses roll in robots that could boost company reliability and 
of course, trim labor costs. Many Walmart workers said they've long feared robots would one day take their jobs, but they hadn't expected this strange transition era in which they're working alongside machines that can be as brittle, clumsy, and easily baffled as, frankly, us human workers can be. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Friday. Number one, Joe Biden declared last night that he no longer supports the ban on federal funding for abortions, capitulating quickly to pressure from his left after searing criticism from his 2020 rivals and women's groups. Circumstances have changed, the former vice president said in Atlanta, literally a day after his campaign put out a statement reiterating his commitment to the Hyde Amendment and just hours after his surrogates praised him on television for living up to his deeply held Catholic convictions. Biden announced the change during a speech at the Democratic National Committee's African-American Leadership Council Summit. He told the crowd that in an environment where the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision on abortion is under attack in Republican-led states, he can no longer support a policy that limits funding. Now, this is a risky move because it feeds into the emerging narrative that Biden lacks core convictions and is a finger-in-the-wind career politician. On the other hand, if he hadn't kowtowed, you'd be reading stories all weekend and watching lots of cable chatter about his problems with Democratic women voters. And the first debate in a couple weeks would have been dominated by attacks over his apostasies. We thought he would evolve, to use the word politicians love, but we didn't think it would be this fast and this clunky. The awkward handling of this whole kerfuffle suggests that the 76-year-old's political instincts are a little rusty, and maybe he and his team are not ready for some of the fastballs coming their way. Number two, economists and experts say that Trump has the upper hand in the trade war, but that that only could last until September. There's a case to be made that Trump has the upper hand in these disputes because the U.S. actually buys significantly more from China and Mexico than those countries buy from us. To put it another way, China and Mexico need Trump economically more than he needs them. But that's just the raw economic calculation. Trump's also facing a campaign for re-election in 2020. You might have heard of it. And he's banking on a strong economy to propel him to victory. There are signs increasingly clear that Trump's trade policies are making the markets and the economy jittery. And the pain is likely to escalate if he doesn't make deals by September. Mexico's trying desperately to avoid American tariffs from going into effect next week by agreeing to a deal limiting migrants going north that would let the U.S. deport Central American asylum seekers. Mexican officials have pledged to deploy up to 6,000 of their troops to the area of the country's border with Guatemala, a show of force they say will immediately reduce the number of Central Americans heading north toward the United States. The plan, a sweeping overhaul of the asylum rules across the entire region, would require Central American migrants to seek refuge in the first country they enter after leaving their homeland. For Guatemalans, that would be Mexico. For migrants from Honduras and El Salvador, that would be Guatemala, whose government held talks this week with acting Homeland Security Secretary Kevin McAleenan. Any migrants who make it to the U.S. border generally would be deported to the appropriate third country, and any migrant who expresses a fear of death or torture in their home country would be subjected to tougher screening standards set by U.S. asylum officers who are more likely to reject them than in the past. But Trump hasn't signed off on this deal yet, though it was negotiated at the White House, and the stiff new tariffs could still go into effect on Monday. A final decision is expected later today. 
Meanwhile, a new nonpartisan analysis shows that America could ultimately lose more than 400,000 jobs if Trump actually follows through and these tariffs fully go into effect. It could erase more than $41 billion in gross domestic product for the United States. When you look at those numbers, you understand why the clock is ticking to cut a deal. Number three, a half century after the New York Police Department raided the Stonewall Inn, prompting a riot credited with sparking the modern gay rights movement, New York City Police Commissioner James O'Neill apologized yesterday. I do know what happened should not have happened. The actions taken by the NYPD were wrong, plain and simple. The actions and the laws were discriminatory and oppressive, and for that, I apologize. O'Neill was speaking at a safety briefing for Pride Month events. After his apology, there was extended applause. In the early morning hours of June 28, 1969, plainclothes police raided the Stonewall Inn, a Greenwich Village bar frequented mostly by gay men, with some lesbians and transgender people as well. For the patrons, raids and police harassment were sadly nothing new. But this time, they fought back. A crowd of hundreds soon gathered outside the bar and threw coins, rocks, and garbage, briefly trapping the officers inside the stone wall. Reinforcements were called in to break up the crowd, and all 13 people were arrested that first night. Unrest around the stone wall continued for days. Stonewall wasn't the first time that LGBT people had resisted police violence, but in its aftermath, two new groups emerged, the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activists Alliance. They took a more in-your-face, direct action approach to LGBT rights than their predecessors. The next year, GLF and GAA members organized an event called Christopher Street Liberation Day. The Stonewall Inn was on Christopher Street, and many homeless LGBT youth lived in a park on the street. They held that demonstration on June 28, 1970, the first anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. It is generally regarded as the first Pride March in America. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, June 7th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday. <laughs>